Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have uh, a warm room on a cold night and we have the Spirit present as always. We have uh, your word open before us and those things, Father, are all we need. And now, Father, in, in anticipation of what you have before us, we pray for wisdom and a open heart. We pray for attentiveness and strength to hear and let these things be useful to you, Father, so you can mold us and change us and do the hard work in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of our study, I explained that the book of Acts has many features in the story, as Luke tells it, that provide structure. They, they give us a kind of, of outline or framework that help us understand the events, make sense of them at a deeper level. And the book could be divided by parts or sections according to numerous different methods. Uh, one example is Peter versus Paul. Remember, we've talked that. But without going through all the different divisions and the different ways in which you can structure the book, for now, let me just point out one of those divisions because it's taking place here as we leave chapter 7 and go into chapter 8. We're at the moment of one of those important dividing places in the book of Acts. To this point, up until chapter 7 is done, the message of the gospel has been preached exclusively to Jews in Jerusalem. Jews in Jerusalem. Peter, as you know, has taken that on as, the, as his primary duty. He's led the charge. John right there with him. But now the early believers at the end of chapter 7 are experiencing the very beginning of persecution in the church. And the persecution is coming, ironically, or maybe not so ironically, from the very Jews who were the intended audience for that early message. So you have the, the intended audience for the gospel in Jerusalem becoming the enemies of that very gospel and, the, and those who preach it. Now, God had always intended that the message of the gospel would go initially to the Jew. Jesus himself tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that salvation is of the Jews, meaning it originates with the Jewish people. And therefore, it goes to them first. Paul reiterates this in the letter he writes to the Roman church in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. But the events of chapter 7, because of the persecution that breaks out with the stoning of Stephen, those events become God's justification and his means by which he moves the gospel outwardly to its next intended audience, which are the Samaritans. As he moves the focus of the gospel from largely or exclusively a Jewish audience to now one that includes Samaritans, he is going to find his justification for doing that and the means for doing that out of the events of chapter 7. After the death of Stephen, the persecution of Christians began in this new way and the trial and the stoning of Stephen was a turning point. We'll see that here at the very beginning of chapter 8, as Luke himself mentions it. But the event itself was somewhat unusual. The fact that Stephen was stoned by the Sanhedrin was a very unusual event. Jews, as you probably know, lacked the power in Judea to take someone's life in formal ways, in, in the course of a trial and, and in the sense of an execution. They didn't have that authority under Roman rule. So stoning Stephen in this way could have resulted in the participants, those who, who condoned the event and participated in the event, with, with being charged with murder themselves under Roman law. They were risking potentially that judgment for going out and stoning Stephen. 
And the fact that so many were willing to go do it indicates perhaps that they were operating under different rules at the time because the Romans didn't play around with this kind of stuff. And every one of these participants was very likely to see justice come their way if the Romans disapproved of the act. There's two possible ways to explain a change in circumstances such that this could be allowed. One explanation is that the Roman Senate had removed the right for Jewish executions under all circumstances but for one. There was an exception. And that one exception was for offenses against the temple grounds itself. They allowed the Jews to conduct executions for that offense. Well, that was the charge essentially made against Stephen. So perhaps that's why they felt they had impunity to go do this at this time. Another explanation is that this event may have occurred during the short window of time in AD 36 when Pontius Pilate was deposed by Roman by higher ups in the Roman government and his replacement was sent to Judea. But there was a window of opportunity in AD 36 where there was no procurator over Jerusalem when Pilate was gone, but the new guy hadn't yet shown up. And it's perhaps the case that they took advantage of that window to do what they did here without fear of Roman government coming on them. But regardless of what caused it, the fact that the city now saw and heard the stoning of Stephen, that probably changed the attitude of the entire city with respect to the message of the gospel. It would have made a dramatic shift in the receptiveness of an audience who heretofore were flocking to the message. Now all of a sudden the prospect of being stoned for being a Christian radically changed the environment in that city. Jews within the city, we know from history and from the Acts, the book of Acts, turned on believing Jews, and particularly the Hellenistic Jews, which is the group that Stephen was from. And that meant that the population saw the moment of Stephen's persecution and death as the moment in which they themselves had to make a decision about whether or not they agreed with the message or agreed with those who persecuted those who agreed with it. And the city largely lined up behind the Pharisees. Now, that's very important as we move out of chapter 7 because that change would naturally have resulted in a change for the early church's ministry efforts, wouldn't it? It first would have moved the disciples outward from the city. You can't evangelize a hostile population. And they would have gone from there to Judea, which is the surrounding area of the nation of Israel as we think of it today. And outside of Judea, they would have eventually hit the diaspora, the, the areas of Asia Minor that surround Judea. The second change it would have infected on the church is it would have caused the disciples to direct their message to a non-Jewish audience because the Jewish audience was no longer receptive to it, no longer interested in it. Now, God was justified in moving the gospel away from a Jewish audience and away from Jerusalem and toward a Gentile population and a Gentile audience on the basis of the sign of Jonah. Let me explain what I mean. When Jesus declared that the Jewish nation had rejected him back as he walked before his crucifixion, he told them they had lost the opportunity to receive him because of a formal rejection of his ministry made by the Pharisees. This occurs in Luke chapter 13, and I don't have time tonight to revisit it. But when that rejection occurred in Luke 13, Jesus re responded to it by saying, that the nation would no longer have an opportunity to receive him as their Messiah. That generation in Israel would no longer have that opportunity. They were cut off. And they eventually saw their punishment come in the form of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. 
And instead of receiving him as the Messiah, Jesus said the only thing that would be given to that generation was what? Do you remember? The sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah was the only thing they would now receive from him because of his rejection. What is the sign of Jonah? The literal sign is resurrection. The sign of Jonah is resurrection. Jonah is the picture of resurrection in the way he himself went as it were, into the grave, the sea being a picture of the deep, the grave, and yet came out of it alive again and preached the gospel to Gentiles. So the sign of Jonah is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' descent, resurrection, which was visibly manifested to the people of Israel when he walked the earth after his death, and then is followed by the preaching of the message to the Gentiles. So the sign of Jonah is to be given to the nation of Israel. It's the only sign they're going to have. Jesus' own resurrection was the ultimate fulfillment of that sign. But the sign was repeated. God makes the sign occur two more times in the history of the nation of Israel as he brings them eventually to their own redemption in a future day. Jesus is the first. This is the second time in which the sign of Jonah is proclaimed to the nation of Israel. For those who are interested in what the third might be, the third is the moment that the two witnesses of tribulation are put to death and then resurrected in front of the whole world. That is the last third and last time that Jews will see the sign of Jonah. The Lord is giving, in this case, the second of those three events in the form of Stephen's testimony. Stephen, in his own testimony, says that Jesus was resurrected and walked the earth. In his own vision, he proclaims that I have seen him. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That proclamation of resurrection is the second time in which the sign itself is delivered to the nation of Israel. Of course, just as the generation of Jesus' day rejected it when they saw it in his case, they reject now Stephen's formal presentation of it a second time. And so the penalty is the same. In the case of rejecting Jesus, they lose the opportunity to receive the Messiah. In the case of rejecting Stephen's testimony, the Jewish population of Jerusalem has now lost the opportunity for the gospel in their city and it will go outward from the city. So the justification for God moving the gospel out of the city of Jerusalem and into the surrounding region and away from Jews and toward Gentiles is that they reject the sign of resurrection or the sign of Jonah as it was delivered by Stephen. This was the formal moment in which the gospel was put on trial where Stephen was the witness. He gave the defense And you have the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Israel, passing judgment on that defense and on that uh, testimony and declaring it to be false, declaring it to be blasphemy and putting him to death over it. That event becomes God's justification. It also becomes his means. And by means, I'm saying it's the way in which he moves it. Isn't that isn't that beautiful? The way God pulls the two together. Their rejection of the gospel is also the way in which he moves it outward. Because now the, the culture and the, and the environment in Jerusalem is hostile to it. And so it must, it must move outward. But now look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, as Luke makes this transition himself. In verse 1, he says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So 
Saul approved of what he saw happening. We all know what we saw last week, chapter 7. Saul is standing there watching Stephen be stoned. This is the man who we know becomes Paul. The Greek word there for hearty agreement, what it means is Paul didn't instigate the action against Stephen, but he liked it. As he saw it happening, it pleased him. And more than that, it inspired him to make this his own cause. This is the moment when Saul sees this event and realizes this is a calling for me. I need to take this same action and go further with it. And let's not just stop with Stephen. Let's get rid of every one of these yahoos. So he makes it his personal cause as a result of what he watches here. Self-appointed vigilante to find and eliminate all the Jewish Christians. As a result, Luke says, many disciples leave the city and they go to the next natural closest place, which would have been Samaria. Samaria is the region directly north of Jerusalem in Judea. Notably, though, the, the apostles stay behind in the city. So the twelve stay in the city. This fact becomes important later here in chapter 8. Stephen, finally, we're told, is buried. He's buried by devout Jewish men who mourn his death. Now, this is an interesting detail as well, because under Jewish custom, under, and actually more than custom, under rabbinical rule, they forbid public lamentations for anyone who was stoned to death. If you were stoned, it was your own fault, and it was prohibited that anyone would make a fuss over their death or mourn their loss. The fact here that you have devout men who are willing to lament over Stephen is an indication by Luke that not every Jew in the city was in agreement with what was going on. There was that group that mourned the fact that there was an injustice done here and they were not in agreement. That stands in contrast to the earlier verse. These two verses are written by Luke so that they contrast one another. Saul, hearty agreement. Devout men of Israel, lamenting, not in agreement over what was done. You can't help but notice something here about Saul. Saul has become the catalyst that God uses here to move the gospel outward from Jerusalem. It's likely that had persecution never come to the early church, the leaders, the apostles and all that were with them may never have ventured very far from the city in preaching the gospel. They certainly wouldn't have considered going outside Judea to Samaria, for example, or anywhere else. And the fact that the apostles even now, even under persecution, are not willing to leave the city just gives you an idea of how reluctant they would have been to go anywhere else. Their assumption was we preach here. This is who it's for. They'll receive it. Jesus will come back any day. They're not thinking long term. But consider this interesting fact. Saul, we know, later becomes Paul. Paul is credited to be the single greatest evangelist in the history of the church, right? God uses Paul's ministry eventually to preach the gospel to Gentiles in virtually the four corners of the known world in that time and to present the full doctrines of the church in his letters. That's Paul's legacy in the church. And yet, here we see Saul, who has not even yet come to faith himself, already being used by God in exactly that way. Saul is responsible for moving the gospel outward from Jerusalem just as much as Paul was. God is already working, even as he does it initially with a persecuting Saul and later with a preaching Paul. I think that's what he might have had on his mind when he wrote 828 in Romans, right? That God turns all things to good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. That God is capable of making anything we do fit his plan, even before we're aware that we're working on his team. Now we move forward and look at the story of Philip, who is the second of those two deacons who we, we learned about a couple chapters ago, who has a notable place in the book of Acts. So we talked about Stephen. Now we have Philip. 
And I want you to notice Luke's connecting verse in verse 4 of chapter 8. He says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. Do you remember on the first night I mentioned that the main thrust of Luke's account is not the work of the apostles. The main thrust of Luke's account in the book of Acts is on the work of the Spirit and the power of God's Word as an instrument of the Spirit in building God's church. And we said that we know that's his main thrust. In fact, he reminds us that that's his main thrust at about four or five. I think it's four or five. I can't remember now how many it was. You may have it in your notes. But there's four or five times in the book of Acts, maybe as many as six, when he says basically what you see right here in verse four. It's a summary verse. We'll see him again in the future. Here's a good one right here where he brings up the fact that what's really going on is the spread of the word of God. And that is the instrument for moving the church outward. Had the disciples merely scattered without preaching the word, let's say perhaps they went out trying to persuade men with with human wisdom. But my point is they had gone out, yes, but if they don't go out preaching the word, the going out part is pointless and ultimately purposeless. It doesn't achieve anything. It's not the men, it's the word that does the work. We get the only way we have any associated credit is if we're diligent at bringing the word. So the Greek word here for scattered is diaspiero, similar to the diaspora. They actually have a common root. It's the same word used in uh, the, the Gospels in the parable of the sower and the seed when we talk about seed being scattered. It's the same word, scattered. And that's interesting here because we're talking about a scattering of God's word much in the same way that the scattering of seed in that parable is a picture of how God's word is thrown out to the world in that kind of indiscriminate way. The scattering here is going to lead to many important changes in the early church. I want you to think now just historically for a minute. There's a lot of history to this book that I, try to, I want to bring out because it will help fully form your understanding of how we got to where we are today in a church-like setting or in the church's culture. There were a lot of changes that came to the church because of this scattering. For example, the Gospels were written because of this scattering, because of the movement away from Jerusalem. While the church was still largely centered in the city of Jerusalem, with all the apostles right there, there was no need for a written gospel. If someone had a question about what did Jesus say, or what was it like to be with him, or who, what kind of man was he, you walked up to the apostle and you asked. They were living with him for three years. They had those answers. Or you heard it preached whenever they came together in the synagogue. The the, the immediacy of the message was present. No need for a written copy of it. Why bother? Once the saints, though, begin to spread out into Judea and beyond, the need for a written record becomes obvious. And since the early church was mostly Jewish, the first gospel account written was Matthew. That's who needed that message, were the Jews. So a Jewish man, a Jewish apostle, wrote the Jewish view of the gospel to a Jewish audience that had left the city and needed that reinforced understanding. Later, new audiences came into the church, Samaritans, Greeks, Romans, And they needed their respective view of what it meant that a Messiah came. So you end up with Luke and Mark and John as a result of those additional audiences. The second change of the church, the apostles began to write letters to those newly founded churches to encourage and instruct those early believers. So we get the epistles because of the movement of the church outwardly. And just as with the Gospels, the first epistles written would have been written to who? Jewish believers. What was the very first epistle ever written? James. By James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to those who were scattered, as his letter opens, to the scattered Jews of the diaspora 
It was to the early Jews who had left the city after the persecution broke out. Following James, quickly, our first and second Peter, Hebrews, Jude, all the Jewish letters came early in the, in the life of the church as a result. Thirdly, the church leadership was decentralized as a result of this movement. It's, it's just practical need. Once you move people out from Jerusalem, there has to be some structure to help support all of those new churches. Leadership was developed. That's why Paul writes to Timothy and says, appoint elders in all these cities. We need to get some structure out there. We need some people helping in the, the governing or in the instruction of our people. And then finally, the fourth thing, formal doctrines, formal creeds, they emerged for the sake of believers out of the apostles' writing because once the distribution of the church occurs, you have to now guard it against false teaching that shows up and tries to change the orthodoxy of the church. So it's a natural progression built upon the scattering, made necessary by the scattering. Now, against all of that backdrop and and history, let's look at the first part of the story of Philip. Acts 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And so there was much rejoicing in the city. Philip, we're told, goes down to the city of Samaria. Why do we say he goes down when he's going north? To a Jew, everything away from the Temple Mount is by definition down. And if you're ever walking toward Jerusalem in the Temple Mount, you're always walking up, even if you're going downhill to get there. That was the convention. This reference, among a couple of others, is reason some point to for saying Luke was Jewish when in other circles the conventional thought is he wasn't. But the fact that he was willing to use this very unique Jewish method or way of, of designating up and down suggests maybe he was Jewish, a Greek-born a Hellenistic Jew. Secondly, Luke says the city of Samaria, which is also a bit confusing because there is no such city as Samaria in Jesus' day. It was a region, not a single city. There was an ancient city of Samaria, but by this time there wasn't one city in that region with the name Samaria. It's more of just convention of language than anything to explain here. What, what he means when he says the city of Samaria is the population center. Not necessarily a specific city named Samaria, but more generally a city in Samaria is the sense of it in the Greek. Some population center, we don't know which one, doesn't matter. So he's preaching to Samaritans, and that's the key point, to Samaritans. Now, Samaritans were a very interesting group historically. I've talked about them here in, in the past in other studies, but it's been a while. I don't, and many of you already may know this, just knowing some of the gospel stories, you, you know that Samaritans were not thought of well by Jews. Jesus himself, or in the gospel of, of John chapter 4, it says that the Samaritans and the Jews have no dealings with one another. So we, we see that as well. In a sense, though, you could say Samaritans were not entirely Jewish nor entirely Gentile which may sound strange when you think about when we normally consider Jews and Gentiles to be mutually exclusive uh, categories of people, right? They were a people who were descended from Jews, who escaped from the Assyrian captivity when Assyria came in and took the northern kingdom and carted them away. Some escaped that captivity. Some of the Jews uh, were able to get away, and they stayed back in the land while the rest of their brothers and sisters were carted off by the Assyrians. They lived in the land for generations after that, and they eventually began to intermarry with uh, many of the non-Jewish Gentile peoples that lived around them. 
when the Jews from the southern kingdom came back from their own captivity in Babylon, Zerubbabel, if you remember, leads them in. They set up the new temple. They went about with Ezra and so on, building the new temple. When the Jews of Samaria found out that the southern nation of Judah had come back into the land with the right to rebuild the temple, they came in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, you'll see this. They come to Zerubbabel and they say, we're here to help. And Zerubbabel says, you will have no part in this because you're no longer Jew. You've, you've, no, you've left that behind by w- willingly intermarrying with the Gentile people. You're just another Gentile at this point. Well, of course, to the Samaritans, as they are now known, that was a, a, an offensive thing. It incensed them. So they promptly went away and decided they didn't need the Jews. They were the right Jews, and they would create their own version of Judaism. So they established their own temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. They established their own version of the law, a kind of bastardized version that struck out any reference to Jerusalem and put Gerizim in its place, literally, and other changes that they preferred. They had their own, created their own priesthood, not out of the Levitic, Levitical line, of course, but from their own tribes, and on and on and on and on. They established a counterfeit version of Judaism in Samaria. Well, that only made the Jews all the angrier, right? Uh, the only group of people Jews hated worse than Gentiles were Samaritans because Samaritans were counterfeiting their own faith, trying to pretend they were Jews. And so that led to this strong hatred and the fact that they would have nothing to do with one another. It explains why in chapter 4 again when Jesus is at the well and the woman asks him, are we to worship here or in Jerusalem? She was a Samaritan trying to understand who had it right. And Jesus answered her, the Jews have it right. Salvation is of the Jews, not of the Samaritans. And they are bitter enemies, hated, and there's a rivalry. Now, as the gospel moves outward, as we go into chapter 8, and the gospel is now being thrust outward from Jerusalem by God's hand, and it's now supposed to reach a new audience. First, we said it went to the Jews in Jerusalem. Secondly, now it moves out from Judea and into Samaria. The Samaritans are the second group of people designated to receive the gospel, distinct from Jews and other kinds of Gentiles. This is an intermediate stepping point in the way God chose to move the gospel forward. And you could ask, and I'm sure you are probably asking, if Samaritans are simply just a subset of Gentiles in general, why the distinction here? Why are they given this unique status, this unique progression status for for the sake of the movement of the gospel? Why aren't they just lumped in with the rest of the Gentiles? And the reason is very important. In fact, the reason is very important to the, to the entirety of chapter 8. Uh, it's connected to the historic role that the Samaritans have had as imposters of Judaism. The Samaritans, as we've said already, as I mentioned already, they made a, uh, a fine art of counterfeiting all that was Jewish. Jewish religious practice, Jewish customs, Jewish festivals, everything. They, but they did it in their own way, of course. They bastardized it just enough that it was not the real thing, but it was their own version of that thing. With each counterfeit that they came up with over history, they reinforced this notion that they might be the true practitioners of of Judaism, of, of the Jewish faith, and therefore the rightful heirs to the promise of Abraham. In contrast to those in Judea, in Jerusalem, who were the rightful heirs of that promise. So now that you have the long-awaited Messiah arriving on earth as promised, as, as was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's also likely that the Samaritans, once they hear of this approved and arrived Messiah, are going to look for some way to counterfeit it for themselves. 
They might, for example, propose their own arrival of a Messiah and, and anoint some man to have been that person and list him up as the competitor of, of sorts to Jesus. They could have very easily have done that because that's been their historic pattern. And at this early vulnerable stage of church growth, the Lord apparently sees fit to bring the Samaritans into the church rather than compete with a false message early in the life of the church. You have to realize how vulnerable the church was and how threatening a Samaritan counterfeit could have been. It's a different thing than simply some nut walking around saying, I'm the Messiah, believe in me. This group of people had at least a degree of credibility because of their history that they could have complicated that message early on and caused people to question whether there was truly a Messiah or not. Is it this guy or is it that guy? Solving that problem by bringing them into the proper church took it off the table as an issue. And that's why the Samaritans end up with their separate own opportunity to believe distinct from the other two groups. And with each movement of the church outward, we're going to see exactly the same pattern we saw with the first one. All right, so let's look for the pattern for just a moment. In the initial stages of the church, it went to a Jewish audience, almost exclusively, in Jerusalem. And what were the unique attributes or, or components to the delivery of that message. Remember when we covered this back in chapter 2. What made the initial presentation of the gospel to that Jewish audience unique and memorable? Signs, wonders, the delayed indwelling of the Holy Spirit, very unusual from what we know today. There was speaking in tongues. There were these unique events, unique in the sense that they don't happen all the time to everybody. They happened for specific reasons, at specific times. And they will come, and we said this back in chapter 2, but I want to reiterate it here because you're going to see it again here. They come with, the, with each stage, with each movement of the church to its next group. All of those signs come back for the time of that first arrival. Then they'll fade away again. Then when they go to the next group, they all come back for a time, and then they fade away again. And the reasoning and the purpose behind it is always the same. But again, it also explains why after the last of those three groups receives the gospel, for the most part, those signs are gone. They've served their purpose, as Scripture said they would when, when Paul teaches on this. So, we're looking here at the arrival of the gospel to a new group and the associated signs and wonders. Look at verse 9. Now, there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Simon the magician here is a curious and an often debated character in, in New Testament Scripture, certainly in the book of Acts. He, he may be fairly called the first religious charlatan to infiltrate the early church. If there had been cable TV, religious programming, prayer cloths, toll-free donation phone lines. If he had had all those things available to him, you can bet he would have found a way to use them. He had big hair. He had a gold throne. That's the kind of guy we're looking at here, right? 
Luke says he is performing magic and astonishing the people. The word magic there implies the black arts, demonic power. And in the course of performing these miracles, of course, he then uses those miracles to gain attention and he reflects it on himself. And so he has this reputation, someone great, the power of God, etc. It's interesting to see right away how Luke is going to juxtapose Philip and Simon. One, essentially, one becomes the antagonist to the other's protagonist, and it's intended to help make a contrast for our sake as well. Philip is astonishing the people. So is Simon. Philip's work is the result of the work of God, while Simon's work is the result of the demonic realm, the magic art. Real power, but demonic. Simon's work over here is intended to make himself look powerful and more important before the people, right? It was it was a show to glorify him. Where, on the other hand, Philip's work causes the people to rejoice and give glory to God and see it as God's power. And the contrast throughout is just very clear and very obvious. Philip, though, is supplanting the work of Simon in this city. He's getting more attention. And based on his preaching, we're told the church is established, and that's a notable thing by itself, of course, that a man would come in to a place that knew nothing of Jesus, presumably or little, had no interest in the gospel or no knowledge of it, and out of nothing... He preaches and sees this response. This is, again, comparable to what event earlier in the book of Acts? It's its own version of Pentecost, isn't it? In the sense that from nothing springs a great revival kind of response to the gospel, a work of God in the people's hearts. And he is doing it through a similar method. And what Luke is doing here is intentionally contrasting that the, the mechanism itself is not so much the point. For example, you got Simon doing maybe the same kind of stuff, at least in some sense. And he's getting attention, too. Right? This goes back to something I've said here many, many times. Just the fact that you can fill a room with people says nothing about the meaningfulness of what you're doing. Nothing. I mean, we can fill football stadiums with people, right? That doesn't tell you anything about the meaningfulness of the event. Yet we tend to think like that even without realizing it sometimes. We judge value based on the number of people who respond. This is all written to illustrate the fact that response in and of itself is not the point, but the fruit of the response. Where where does it lead us to? Glorifying God or glorifying men? Whether that men be ourselves or somebody else. And the reemergence here of miracles from the point of view of what Philip is doing, the reemergence of these signs and wonders for the sake of the Samaritans is intended for the same reasons that they were performed back in chapter 2 in Pentecost. Why do you have these signs connected with the message of the gospel in this new place. It affirms the teaching is credible and it demonstrates that God's power is behind the message. It affirms the messenger and it illustrates that it is of God, not of some other source. Now, the other thing that's notable here is the Holy Spirit is not yet seen or or said to be indwelling the new believers. It's not yet seen to be happening. It will happen later in the book, later in this chapter. Why does the arrival of the Spirit wait under these circumstances? Because earlier, there was a delay in Jerusalem for the Jews, and we understood back then that the delay in the arrival of the Spirit for the sake of Jerusalem was for what reason? Why did it wait for the 50th day for the Spirit of God to come upon the people in Jerusalem? Because of the feast, the Feast of Pentecost. The moment of the indwelling was a fulfillment of a feast which occurred on that specific day on the calendar. So the the Spirit of God was not going to indwell any believers in those first 49 days because it was appointed to happen on the 50th day to fulfill 
a prophetic meaning assigned to the Feast of Pentecost. But that's not the answer now, can it be? That's not an answer anymore. I can't say that the delay of the arrival of the Spirit in the time of the Samaritan revival is a result of this same feast. We're past that point. So why now would you have a delayed indwelling of the Holy Spirit? It's got to be a different reason now than the one that was originally in place. It's to make an impression on an audience, a certain audience. But the audience for whom this delayed indwelling is for is not the audience you're thinking. It's the apostles themselves. It's Peter and John. Who was it with Jesus as he was walking toward Jerusalem who suggested that they call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans because they wouldn't give Jesus a night in the hotel? John. What do you think the attitude is among Jewish disciples and Jewish apostles towards Samaritans? There has to be some way for God to impress upon them that he is at work in the Samaritan heart even as he is using other signs to show the Samaritans themselves. And what he will do is he will connect the arrival of the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands from the apostles so that the apostles themselves are not only witnesses of it, but intimately involved in it. And undeniably now they can agree that the Samaritans are receiving the gospel according to God's purpose. I think our country has some inkling of what this is like if we put it in the context of racial slavery and and if we go even further back in time and we realize how deeply rooted it was in our conscience as a nation to think about 10 years, for example, after uh, the end of the Civil War, how people thought in this country, that's essentially the kind of thinking that would have been prevalent in the minds of the apostles. Despite faith and being good men in that sense, They're fighting a culture within themselves, and God fought fought it with them. So here is a delayed indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a function of a new group coming into the body of Christ. With a new group comes all those same needs, showing that this is true, illustrating that God is in fact allowing it and pushing it forward. All of those same needs are present, and so in uh, in, in all three cases, these signs are made available. But that also explains why they would not be expected to be commonplace within the body of Christ after those stages are done. I don't need, God does not need to make clear yet again that Gentiles are welcome into the family of God with each new believer getting the body of Christ, into the body of Christ. So there's no delayed indwelling of the Spirit. There is not a speaking in tongues mandate and there is not a, you know, casting out of demons taking place. Those events have served their purpose. Paul makes that point in uh, 1 Corinthians. So this is to simply show where those events are occurring on the timeline so that we can make note of them ourselves. All right? Now, speaking of powerful signs, let's talk to Simon for just a few minutes. Simon has a pretty good thing going here, doesn't he, in Samaria? I mean, within his community, he is the leading spiritual attraction. He has this this stick going where he does his thing and he gets the attention. And you have to understand that that would have had economic ramifications. This is not merely a sideshow for this guy. With And we do this today, although we have a different motivation, of course, and a different uh, situation, but people who service in ministry are often compensated for that service, and and powerful men can often turn that to their advantage if their hearts are are inclined toward that. And here you would expect this guy to have made the most of this situation for his own sake. That's why I said he's the earliest religious charlatan of the church era. Now, like the Pharisees in Jerusalem, anything that would come along that might contend with his prominence or put, some, put at risk his whole show, his, his political and, and powerful show, would be construed as a threat. 
So the arrival of a competitor, as he would have perceived Philip to be, who wields even greater powers, even a better show than, than Simon has, is sure to bother Simon a lot. Now, Simon's initial approach to that concern is interesting. He takes a very uh, patient approach, I guess would be the word I would use. He studies the guy. And probably so he could learn his tricks, hoping that maybe there's room for both of us here, or at the very least, maybe you'll tire and move on. Simon, we're told, in fact, is so impressed by Philip that he, quote, believes and submits to water baptism. And making clear here, we're talking about water baptism, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The word for observing here, when he says in in the text that he is observing Philip, it's theoreo in Greek, which carries a very certain sense. The sense here is of studying something or examining something. It's not merely just watching kind of like someone who's watching a car wreck just out of stunned interest in the event. This is someone who is taking a very conscious effort to study and learn and, and inspect. That's the sense of the word here. So another way to say it is Simon is following Philip around here out of professional curiosity. How does he do this? Gosh, if I could do that, that's a great one. He's going to have to show me that one. That's the sense of the word. It causes us to wonder, or at least it should cause us to wonder here, about what Luke means when he says Simon believed. Now, in the Greek, it says even Simon believed. And there is a sense there where Luke is leaving his options open in the course of the story that he's saying there was a response. Yes. And the response was, at least superficially, of belief, followed by a willingness to submit to water baptism. But could Simon have made a confession here without truly accepting the gospel? It's certainly possible. In fact, it's possible that anyone could do that. There's nothing unusual about the fact that that could happen. The question is, did that happen? Or what was really going on in his heart? The story will tell us what was really in his heart before it's over. Now, the news of, of Philip's ministry here in Samaria reaches the apostles in Jerusalem. And of course, they're going to be shocked to hear first that the guy they hired to wait tables is out evangelizing. The fact that his ministry is caught on like that and then the fact that it caught on with Samaritans must have shocked them. My assumption, and I think it's a safe assumption, is that they would have expected Philip to receive some interest from Jews in the diaspora here and there. But they would never have imagined that he'd have a mass interest, first of all, and then secondly, from this audience. That was probably a big surprise for them. Look what happens in verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter and John here are not assigned the duty of going down there and simply laying on hands and let's just do the Holy Spirit thing. Hey, did you hear there's some new believers down there? They need the Holy Spirit. Peter, John, why don't you get down there and finish the process? That's not not at all how this would have transpired in their minds. They're going down there in a skeptical mindset. They're going down there to hear if to see if what they've heard is actually true and to make some sense of it given that they would not have expected it. And in fact, just the sense, just the fact that they go down there at all tells us how concerned they were by this news. This is not a minor thing to just get on your horse, so to speak, and and go up to Samaria. Don't read, by the way, don't read verses 14 and 15 together too quickly or you'll lose the sense of what's actually being said there. Uh, What you'll start to hear, if you read them back to back too carefully, it'll sound as if their purpose in travel was to lay on hands. Uh, as if that was just the normal expected thing. 
That isn't the proper reading. They came to investigate. They came to validate what they had heard to see if it was true faith. uh, Or was it just going to be the Samaritans mimicking again? Was it just yet again another one of these Samaritan tricks? Once they arrived, then they performed these activities in response to the faith that they found in the group. So Luke just summarizes it all with those two verses. They were the, the apostles here are obviously an important part of the event because, as we've said already, their presence validates the entire experience. But it also confirms something we learned earlier. This is the last thing for tonight, but it's an important element. Earlier in this study, I mentioned that when Jesus turned to, to Peter and said, you have the keys to the kingdom. What he meant when he said that, we've often heard that taught probably in 50 different ways. What he did mean by that is only has one meaning. And what he meant by it was that as, God, as the gospel is to be made known to men, first the Jews, then the Samaritans, then the Gentiles, that Peter would always be the one with the key or keys to open those groups up to the gospel, to make the, those groups first hear and receive the message. He preached Pentecost. Before any Jews came to the faith in a, in a substantial way, it required Peter to unlock them, so to speak, with the keys that Jesus assigned to him in that role. Here now, Peter and John are going down to Samaria and will perform exactly the same role, key, key opening role, so to speak, for the people of Samaria. It didn't have to be Peter and John. It could have been just Peter. Why do you think John's being included? Why does God see fit that John would make this trip as well? I go back to my earlier comment about he was one of the instigators of bring fire down from heaven. There's an intent here, I think, to to teach him a little bit of what's going on as well. This is now why the Holy Spirit has not yet come upon the disciples. Peter has been enlisted to recognize for himself first that there is this expansion to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans in this case. He has to see it for himself. He has to be taught by God, this is part of my plan. And he will see that as he goes down and lays on hands. And then secondly, Peter has to go down there because God has already said through Christ that Peter would be his instrument for opening these doors, the keys, in other words. So Peter has to bring the keys. The delayed arrival of the Holy Spirit is God's way of saying, I'm waiting for Peter to be involved so that I may move forward in this plan. And it's not that God was dependent on Peter. Don't don't ever think that. He wasn't. He elected to bring Peter into this role and use him for his own purposes, for the sake of being very clear to us as observers and to the church about how this was going on, how it was moving, that it was purposeful, God was in control of his church. Peter is simply the the mechanism God is using. And so Peter will ultimately be that one who opens the door for the Gentiles in a future day. The dream will be a part of how that is made possible. And uh, John now comes as well. One last footnote and we'll finish. John is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. This is his last mention. Notable only, I guess, because it is interesting to see him drop off the pages so early, but it does emphasize Luke's focus becomes and remains for now Peter and then becomes Paul. And as Paul's traveling companion, the vast majority of the book is written from the perspective of one who is side by side with Paul in his missionary journeys. And as such, it's it's a, a valuable record of Paul's ministry. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Thank you for tonight. I thank you, Father, for the the wisdom and insight that you have offered. And I pray, Father, that that wisdom was evident in my words. But I also trust and know, Father, that where, where it was lacking, you are more than capable of filling in the gaps. And so I pray, Father, that you would be doing that in their hearts and my heart, showing us 
uh, even more than I might have been able to convey. And uh, by the same measure, Father, I pray you would be encouraging and directing us into a, a life that reflects what we learn, a boldness perhaps to go out and preach, perhaps, Father, a willingness to endure persecution so that your church may be strengthened through it, um, perhaps just, Father, the quiet confidence to know you are ever-present, guiding and directing and growing your church. Thank you, Lord, for Wayside and the chance to preach and, and teach and learn in this place. And bring us back next week, as always we ask, and as well with perhaps some others who you may direct our way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.